Well, North Roanoke, we continue our study through the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, today in Joel. Now, if you're having trouble finding the Minor Prophets, they are just before the Gospels, and they're very short, relatively speaking. So if you go to Matthew and turn backwards, you will eventually find Joel, but it's only three chapters long. So if you get to Ezekiel, Daniel, that time, that sort of section of your Bible, you've gone too far. Of course, if you've got a smartphone, all those problems are resolved. And you can scroll through on your table of contents. Uh, this morning, we're going to consider uh, Joel's message to us, which is be prepared for the day of the Lord. Be prepared for the day of the Lord. And one last uh, commercial. This, this uh, coming Wednesday night, we begin our summer series of Wednesday nights, which means we don't have quite as many classes on the schedule. It will be uh, yours truly. Uh, leading a, a class on Wednesday nights, and it's going to be a, a bit of a pastor's potpourri, depending on uh, the sermon or what's going on in our culture, in the news cycle, that sort of thing. But this week, we will dive deeper into the book of Joel. We won't go back over the sermon, but whenever you endeavor to preach an entire book in one sermon, uh, there are probably some questions left unanswered and some subjects that you would have liked more clarification and information on. And so we will do that this Wednesday night, and we will also pray together. Uh, later in the summer, we'll talk about things like Islam, homosexuality, transgenderism, and other issues that you might find of interest in our day. Having said that, would you read with me now in the book of Joel? And we're going to read quite a bit of Joel, so hang with me, and I will give some directions as we go to help get you back on track if you've faltered in staying with me where we are in the verses. So, hear now the word of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. In other words, we're doing what Joel commands us to do. Keep repeating this story. It's a story that has meaning for us and significance for us. It's a story written for our good. Verse 4, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. There's been a massive locust plague. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that's cut off from your mouth. For a nation, meaning a nation of locusts, has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up. 
from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Why? For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, Joel continues through the rest of chapter 1 to explain the economic impacts of the devastation of the locusts. Now, continuing to chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And now, verse 11 of chapter 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And get this question, who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting in evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering. For the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Get everybody. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar right there in the temple complex. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. And will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Continue down to verse 23. Because God's going to provide in such a miraculous way. Rejoice, O sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God. For he's given you the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. And the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locusts has eaten. The creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts. My great army which I sent among you. Down to verse 27. Then you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants. I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Go to verse 32. And it will come about... That whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. There will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, God 
through the prophet Joel, tells us about this great and awesome and terrible day of the Lord. Here's Joel's point. The locust plague and swarm is a for, but a foreshadowing of a greater plague that's coming when God comes in victory over all the sin and unrighteousness and rebellion that's in the world. It's going to be a day of blood and smoke and holy vindication. And then in verse 16 of chapter 3, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever." And Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Would you pray with me? God, help us to know what it is you have said through your prophet Joel. And may it be for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Hosea showed us That as sinners, we've been unfaithful to the perfect, heavenly, holy husband. And the only remedy for our unfaithfulness is that God himself would come and buy us back from the slave market of sin where we were trafficking ourselves. And in Joel, Joel says, for those who are not bought back from God, the day of the Lord is near. Verse 15 of chapter 1. It is coming. Verse 1 of chapter 2. It's great and very awesome. Verse 11 of chapter 2. It's announced with the blast of a trumpet. Verse 1 of chapter 2. It's a day of judgment for anyone who is not found, get this, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Verse 32 of chapter 2. Joel asks of this horrific day of God's judgment, who can endure it. Hubbard says this, the day is portrayed as a worldwide sacrifice to Yahweh's holiness as the nations which played fast and loose with his glory become a burnt offering whose blood and fire and smoke are a grim testimony to their tragic mistake. This day of the Lord is something that we would certainly like to avoid. And Joel regards the locust visitation as God's judgment on the sins of the people that's kind of like the day of the Lord, but it's giving them an opportunity to not have to face the day of the Lord on their own terms. It's a a warning shot. So, So Joel is a book of preparation not only for the people he wrote to centuries ago, it's a book of preparation for you and for me. As he says in verse 2 and 3, keep on telling it to your sons and their sons and their sons. So Joel is giving us a divine word this morning, a divine opportunity this morning to evaluate whether or not we are truly ready to stand before a holy God on the great consuming day of the Lord. So the question this morning is, how is it that we can be prepared for the day of the Lord? Joel answers that in three ways. To prepare for this imminent, soon coming day of the Lord, he could come as early as right now. We must first be broken over the dryness of our lives. Secondly, we must 
sincerely repent of our sin. And thirdly, we must rejoice in the presence and the promise of God's deliverance. First, we've got to be broken over the dryness of our lives. Did you notice that God sends a locust plague? Uh, The locust plague is the plague that God sends against Egypt. It's plague number eight. And what happens when God sends this locust plague against his enemies, the people of Egypt who enslaved his people? Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Here's what God is showing us this morning. When when we come to rely on things other than God, God will even take the things that he sends against his enemies and he will war against his own people to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might be satisfied with Christ and Christ alone. There's something instructive about judgment which comes by way of an insect, isn't there? It's a locust. And locusts aren't tiny, but... Any, any one of us, any adult in here could squash a locust, any individual locust. But, but before the swarm of locusts who eat and consume everything in their path, suddenly we are powerless. And if God can take a locust and cut the cords of life, how small must we be, North Roanoke, when compared to the majesty of God who commands even the winds and the waves and the locusts to obey him? You see, the economic devastation that Joel recounts for us is vast. Food is cut off before our eyes, verse 16. The harvest is destroyed, verse 11 of chapter 1. The vine dries up, the trees dry up, the grain dries up, and the water brooks dry up. But look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Even more important than the economic devastation, the rejoicing dries up from the sons of Man, you see, economic devastation is not America's greatest problem and it's not the church's greatest problem. Now, our greatest problem is not in America our $20 trillion debt and counting. Our problem is that we do not know the God who has given himself for us. Yes, the grain and the wine and the oil are the three staple crops of Palestine. They were used for lamps and medicine and hygiene and oil. But Joel doesn't focus on that. Instead, he focuses on the fact that there was not an offering available in the house of the Lord. You see, when we become content to come and sit on Sunday morning in our comfortable padded chair and to sing the same songs and to hear the same preacher and to put the same whatever it is in the offering plate and to do the same things over and over and over again, but in our lives we are not connected to the one who's made himself available for us, God is not impressed. And God will actually sacrifice the sacrifices of his people so that we would get back to the point where we want to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. Let me say that this way. God will bring us to the place where we have nothing to offer him so that we will finally come to the place where we will gladly offer him our all. I can't overstate how important the grain and the wine and the oil were. 
You see, the grain and the oil went together to make the bread that was to be offered perpetually in the temple along with the animal sacrifices morning and evening. Leviticus 2 tells us this. There was also supposed to be a drink offering poured out morning and evening. Why? Because the animal sacrifice wasn't enough. What we needed was not just someone to die for our sin. We needed someone who would provide the bread and the wine, the sustenance of our soul. And God is foreshadowing through the temple and the tabernacle sacrificial system that he would be our bread that he would be our wine and in Joel because the locust plague has come the offering is cut off there is no offering in the temple complex and Joel is urging us to look to the bread look to the one who would be the crushed fruit of the vine who would be the offering on our behalf Joel is begging us through the lack of the bread and the wine in chapter 1 to seek the one who would be bread and wine for us in chapter 2 and 3 you see when we come to trust in our routine rather than in the provision that we have in Christ, we should not be surprised when God sends a dry spell into your life. When He sends something to expose the dryness and the charade that you are playing with God. As Hubbard says in verse 20 of chapter 1, If wild animals call upon God's help, how much more should His people who have been summoned to fasting and prayer call upon their God. So the first thing we must do this morning, North Roanoke, is recognize that we are devastated. We are worse, we are worse off than the land that has been pillaged by locusts if we have not the provision of God for our lives. If we don't have a heart connection with the God who gave himself to have a heart connection with us. So what does Joel instruct the leadership to do? Verses uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, the priests mourn. Verse 10, the land mourns. The farmers are ashamed. The vine dressers wail. The priests are commanded to lament. And the ministers of the altar to wail. All the inhabitants of the land are commanded several times to cry out to the Lord. In verse 1 of chapter 2, they're called on to tremble. Why? Because the day of the Lord is near. And it is a day of reckoning for every single person who knows Religious ritual, but knows nothing of the God to whom it points. Some of you are tired of the charade this morning. Some of you are tired of playing games with God. Some of you are tired of getting close to the things of God, but never giving yourself over to the God who's already offered himself to you as the bread and the wine of his presence. And this is the day to come and confess that you are dry and you are barren and you are destitute and you are lifeless apart from a God who substituted himself for you. First, we've got to own the dryness of our lives apart from Christ. But secondly, we, we must sincerely repent of our sin. We must sincerely repent of our sin. In verse 14 of chapter 1, Joel says, proclaim a solemn assembly. You know what a solemn assembly is? It's a stoppage of all activity, of all work. Do you know, do you know what we tend to do as Baptists and, and as Lifeway patroning Christians when, when we encounter a sermon and somebody says, man, that, that's what's going on in my life. I, I've got a dry spell in my soul. I'm I'm just going through the motions and I'm not really enjoying the presence of God in my life. You know what we do? We go look for a book called How to Conquer the Dryness of 
God, uh, the lack of uh, fellowship with God, how to conquer dryness in your life. And then we go through a 15-week course and a 25-week study, and we pray the prayer of the lack of dryness. Is that what God tells us to do? No. He says, stop it. Stop doing programs. Stop doing work. Stop doing your routine. God even breaks off the offering in the temple to give us a chance to stare into the hollowness of our soul apart from God, to stand still for a second. And to consider our ways and to truly repent of our own depravity. See, the problem is right when we get right up to the place where God wants to do business with our soul, we go run off and do something else. And God says, just stop it. Just quit. Just be still. Let God, by his spirit, expose what's going on in your soul and root it out of your heart so that he can pour in his Holy Spirit with the life-giving, saving, life-animating presence of God. Proclaim a solemn assembly. In verse 12 of chapter 2, it is God himself, not Joel, who issues the call to repentance. Yet now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And he goes on in verse 13 and tells us to rend our Heart, not just our garments. Back in Old Testament times, to symbolize your desire to repent, you could tear your clothes. I'm not going to do that this morning. But, but you, could, you could rip your shirt, you could rip your cloak or your tunic. And here's God's concern. We can go through the weeping and the fasting and the mourning and we can proclaim a solemn assembly and we can even tear our clothes. But until our hearts are torn... Away from the things that are less than God. Until our hearts are ripped open for the rebellion that we've had against God. We've missed the mark of repentance. To rend our hearts is to change our whole attitude towards sin. It's to see sin as the way God sees it. And to read Joel chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. And see that our sin deserves the supreme condemnation of a holy God. But God made a way for us not to have to bear it. We turn toward God and from sin, tearing not our clothes, but our hearts. See, some of you like to repent like my son Samuel does. My son Samuel just turned, uh, he celebrated, we celebrate half birthdays in the Palmer household. I don't know how that happened. We barely celebrated birthdays in, in my house, but in, in the Stacy and Daniel Palmer house, we celebrate birthdays and half birthdays. If you're a kid, not for me. I'm going to be 38 as long as I can be. <coughs> But, but here's what my son Samuel does right now. Hey, son, uh, I asked you not to do that like 10 times. Sorry, Dad. And then he goes right back to doing it. But see, sorry, Dad, is code word for you're going you're gonna to be okay with that now, right? You're going you're gonna to forgive me. I mean, I'm not really concerned about the fact that I've been ignoring you and rejecting your authority in my life for the last 30 minutes. Sorry, Dad. And then he, and he moves on. And what God is saying is let's not be the sort of people who tip our hat to repentance and then move on as though there was nothing going on in our lives that was contrary to the will of God. Now, if you really understand what God has done in Christ, you might be asking this question. How is it that we can even repent? Why do we even get to turn away from sin and to turn to God? Because I'm a sinner, I'm destitute, I've rebelled against God. Why do I even get that privilege? Well, the answer is in the name of God. 
Look at verse 13. Return to the Lord your God. Why? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. This goes all the way back to Exodus 34 and verse 6. And we see this name of God occur again and again and again in Scripture. God, in His own name, in His own character, is one who wants to turn away from the calamity that's coming towards sinners. He wants to relent, and He will relent of the calamity that's coming towards you for the dryness and the deadness of your life. When? When you relent of your sin. God wants to make a way of restoration for those who give up on restoring themselves. He wants to make a way of restoration for those who abandon themselves to Him. And He does this in Christ, who is the bread and the wine, who takes the punishment we deserved, verse 8 of chapter 1, and who brings the salvation that we could not get on our own, verse 16 of chapter 2. We can repent because God will relent of the calamity if we turn to Him. (coughs) But finally, we must rejoice in the presence, the promise, and the person of God's deliverance. Joel asks in verse 14, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? But four verses later in verse 18, he confirms for us. Now in your your Bibles, it's probably written that he will do this. But it actually uses what's called the prophetic passive. Then the Lord has been zealous for his land and has had pity on his people. Joel assures us in verse 18 of the answer to the question that he raises in verse 14. Do we know if God will turn and relent? Yes, we know God will turn and relent. It's who he is. And he sent his son to be the very bread and the wine of his presence that we could not produce on our own. He gives us the offering that we could not give. Verse 19 of chapter 2 Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil. Verse 24 of chapter 2. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. But he doesn't just give us the offering. He also gives us the protection of his presence. He strips our enemies of their power over us. Verse 19 of both chapter 2 and chapter 3. He gives us purity. He tells us that there will no longer be strangers in the land. Chapter 3 and verse 17. Now, does that mean there are only going to be Anglos in the kingdom? No, that doesn't mean that at all. By no strangers in the land, God is saying that it doesn't matter, red and yellow, black and white, it doesn't matter what tribe, tongue, language, or nation, there's going to be people from all over the world. And we want to be a kind of church that welcomes strangers into the kingdom of God. What it means that we won't be strangers, that there won't be strangers there, is those who think they can get in with an offering apart from the blood of Christ won't be in at all. Every single person in the kingdom kingdom to come will be marked as those who have trusted and received the provision through the blood of the lamb. We won't be there because of what's in our blood, but what was in our savior's blood. No more strangers in the land. He gives us provision. He gives us protection. He gives us purity, and he also gives us productivity. The land's productivity is restored. He tells us in 22 Verse 22 of chapter 2, the pastures of the wilderness turn green. 
The tree bears its fruit. And as God promised all the way back in Deuteronomy, the land has yielded its increase. Here's the deal. In Christ, this age has already dawned. God brings the garden and garden life to His people through His Spirit. When Christ comes, yes, He gives us victory in an ultimate sense when we dwell with Him in the garden that we read about in Revelation 22. But He also takes the dryness of your life that we just talked about and He makes it, look at verse 18, a day when the mountains drip and the hills flow and the brooks flow and the spring goes out from the house of the Lord. God, by His Spirit, changes our heart from the inside out and allows us to enjoy the nourishment and the provision and the protection and the freedom and the flow and the pro productivity of belonging to God in his good land today. Yes, ultimately, Judah will be inhabited forever. There will be population there, verse 20 of chapter 3. And all of this is possible because of what God says in 26, verse two, chapter 2, verse 26. God will deal miraculously with you, wondrously, miraculously with you. He will restore what the locusts have eaten. And just a moment ago, when I was preaching on the dryness of your lives, I saw all across this room faces acknowledging that there are dry areas in your life. I saw it all across this room. Here's the promise of God. He has sent His Son and He's poured out His Spirit. And if you will come to Him and let Him do a holy examination of your heart, He will root out the dryness and He will pour out abundant springs of water into your heart that never, ever stop flowing. That's the promise. What the locust is devouring in your life right now, God will restore it even more than you can imagine. He will do it just like that by His Spirit. Hubbard says this, The presence of the Lord is the only explanation for His bounty. Where does this bountiful provision of God come from? It comes from God Himself. Joel sees a time in verses 28 and 29 when everyone can know God intimately. How? By receiving the Holy Spirit. The sons of men whose rejoicing is dried up in verse 12 of chapter 1, become the sons of Zion, who are ever invited to rejoice and be glad in the Lord their God, in verse 23 of chapter 2. We go from rejoicing dried up to rejoicing forevermore. And we become those who know, verse 27 of chapter 2, that He is in our midst. He is the Lord our God and there is no other. He commands and He deserves our allegiance and our allegiance alone. You see, the true sons of Israel, the true sons of Zion, the true sons of God, are those who escape the day of the Lord because they already dwell in Zion. Verse 2, 32, chapter 2, verse 32. Did you see that? There will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. But where is that? On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Jesus is the king prophesied about in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, where God says of his king and son, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 17 of chapter 3, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. How is it that you and me can be residents of Zion? Paul answers it in Philippians chapter 3. We are now citizens of heaven. 
We're already in, seated in the heavenlies. We're seated in the place from which the king triumphs, from which the king conquers. We live in the day that Joel foresaw. Peter confirms that for us. We live in those days when there remains a time to repent before the great day of the Lord. We are the ones who can look to Christ who had lots cast for him, who already has received the great day of the Lord. If you read about the day of the Lord, what do you see? Smoke, blood, fire, earthquake, moons darken, etc. What happened when Jesus went to the cross? They cast lots for him. They shed his innocent blood. The earth quaked. The moon darkened. The sun darkened at high noon. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to take the day of the Lord for sinners. So that when the day of the Lord comes again, you'll not have to. God came as the bread and the wine of the presence of God. So that we can receive Him and we can come into His presence daily and offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Because the bread and the wine has already been provided in Christ. So this morning as we come to the table, how appropriate that we would be considering Joel. As we come to the table and remember that we are the ones who know the answer to Joel's question, who can endure the day of the Lord? There's only one. It's God Himself, King Jesus, who is enthroned on the praises of His people, who sits on Zion's, stands on Zion's mountain, and He comes in victory again. So this morning, we're going to come to the table. And if there's dryness in your life that stems from the fact that you don't know God, I want to ask you to let that cup pass. Don't partake of the the cup, the bread and the cup, if you don't know and belong to this God. This is a celebration of the fact that God has already provided the offering that we need. And for those who know that offering, please partake of the bread and partake of the cup. But some of you know the one who is offered for you and you recognize you need to do some business with God right now. We invite you to do that in this very moment. And after we partake of the bread and the cup, we will have one last song. And some of you will have the opportunity to trust Christ. Some of you will have the opportunity to know that Christ is the one who's been offered for you. And that is sufficient before a holy God. Why don't we pray? I'll invite uh, our deacons to come at this time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you that we can be prepared for the day of the Lord because Christ has come. The Spirit's been poured out and the bread and the wine of your presence is available to all. Lord, help us to know how to respond to you in these moments. As we celebrate what you've done for us, may we have joy and gratitude in great abundance. For you are our King, you are our victor, and you are our salvation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.